Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight, Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston and joining me once again are Michaela Holt from Agora Energy Vendor and Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi team, are we both well? I assume I'm sli- I might be slightly more fit because everyone else in the call came back from the COP and is probably exhausted. So <laughs> no, I'm good. Good, good. No, I, I have recovered, I think. It, <laughs> it, it took me a couple of days. Um, I, I spent uh, only, I think, four days at COP properly. But even just a single day um, <laughs> left me completely wiped out. Just um, I'm sure Simon will talk about it a little bit more. But just the venue and the setting... Um, it was utterly exhausting, um, yeah. to be honest. I can imagine. I can. I. I find. Yeah. I find trade shows exhausting. So something as massive and as busy and as sort of intense as COP must be yeah, absolutely. It's like trade show plus policy. That's the thing, right? Must be even more exhausting. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it must be. Um, ah, as we're saying, we're recording this podcast just shortly after the deal has been brokered in Sharm El Sheikh. Uh, the outcome, once again, after two weeks of laboured and late night negotiations is underwhelming, would we say? I think Simon should answer that question because he is he's he's followed COP in great detail. I saw Simon and his colleagues go through all of the detail throughout the negotiations sharing it on Twitter, I think talking to journalists. Um, so Simon is, is probably the one amongst us who is best placed to give uh, an informed answer. Absolutely. I'll do, uh, let me do a formal introduction. This week on What Matters, uh, we are joined by Simon Evans, Deputy Editor and Senior Policy Editor at Carbon Brief. Uh, Simon was in Egypt for COP. Uh, and this week, we'll discuss the outcomes uh, and what needs to be done really to begin phasing out the damaging fossil fuels from the global economy. Uh, one of the la- major landmark agreements from the last two weeks was uh, we'll see developed countries provide finance to emerging economies affected by climate-related disasters, yet the Sharm el-Sheikh implementation plan excluded any mention of phasing out fossil fuels and had little emphasis placed on reducing emissions. Simon, thank you for joining us on More Matters. You must be absolutely exhausted uh, after your time uh, in uh, Egypt. First of all, how was it being at COP and how did it compare to previous years? And yeah, what what was your uh, response to the to the agreement in the end? Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, I mean, I would very much echo what, what Jan was, was saying and, and, you know, Michaela about the COP. It is utterly exhausting. Uh, I tactically this year chose to, to only go for, for one week. So I only went for the second week. My, my editor, Leo Hickman, went for the first week and we kind of did a swap, a tag team, if you like. And... It's quite hard to describe just why it's so so exhausting. It, it, there's something, I think it's there's something physically overwhelming about about being at the COP. It's you know obviously there's you know forty thousand people are registered for the summit, so there's just a very large number of people. Um, 
you know, typically you're inside these, you know, kind of anonymous exhibition halls, if you like, and that there's lots of pavilions. It's it's often very hard to navigate, and it was, I have to say, particularly difficult uh, at Sharm El Sheikh um, for various reasons. I mean, I think there was a COP27 app uh, provided by the Egyptian presidency, but but there were there were kind of rumours or even you know reporting in the papers that 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 app enabled effectively spyware on your phone. So lots of people weren't downloading it. And so finding people was, you know, people were dropping pins on Google Maps and sharing that because that was literally the only way to find each other. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there's all of that. And then, uh, of course, you know, trying to follow the negotiations while all of that noise is going on is incredibly difficult. And, uh, you know, most of the negotiations happen behind closed doors. Um, you know, so so our efforts at Carbon Reef of trying trying to understand what's happening. We're obviously watching as new draft texts emerge over the course of the two weeks, and and then obviously we're triangulating that you know with our sources, you know, talking to lots of experts, negotiators, other journalists, and so on, just to you know to to try and make sense of what's happening. Yeah, you were kind of the information hub, really. You know, you published always your traffic light lists with the topics and the progress and yeah big job yeah yeah i mean it was you know on the the middle sunday of the cop i was i was sitting down at my at my computer trying to make sense of of progress so far and you know i don't don't know if people understand how this works but you know the way that the cop is structured you have these formal negotiations and before they you know before they arrive they before they actually start the negotiations, they have to agree what is on the agenda. And so they they had, I mean, this is quite a common occurrence, but it was a particularly bad one this year where they had what's called an agenda fight. So before they can start negotiating, they have to negotiate what they will negotiate, um, i.e. what will be on the agenda. And they spent 48, more than 48 hours having an agenda fight before the Sharm el-Sheikh summit. And primarily what they were arguing about was was whether to put on the agenda this question of finance for the loss and damage caused by climate change. And uh, ultimately, there was actually a fairly broad agreement that they should have it on the agenda, but little details about exactly how it was put on the agenda, what were the words talking about. Um, so the Paris Agreement you know, talks about averting, minimising and addressing loss and damage. And only really out of those out of those words, addressing is the one that people imagine relates specifically to to, to funding to, to money. In other words, you know, averting and minimising is about you know could be about mitigation, for example, minimising uh, the amount of warming we have so that there's less loss and damage involved. Whereas addressing loss and damage was the the, the word that people wanted to see included. Um, and then once you have the agenda agreed, each of those agenda items is kind of taken off as its own little little set of negotiations, separately led by by what's called co-facilitators. So they, you know, that the presidency will appoint um, co-facilitators for each agenda item, and then over the course of two weeks, they, you know, they start off. Um, you know, they've already had meetings in in Bonn. Um, in June, and obviously the meetings that they had, pre- you know, the previous year, so COP26 in Glasgow, and they've obviously been talking about a lot of these topics for a long period. And so sometimes they turn up at the start of the COP with with already some some words on a page, and sometimes it's you know uh, much earlier stages discussions. And then over the course of two weeks, they have to come up with 
a legal text, effectively, you know, a formal legal decision that they will adopt at the very end of the summit, um, which make which decides certain things. And over the course of the two weeks, they they release each draft iteration of the text, and we were trying to keep track of those. And it's very difficult. I mean, you know, people will will recognise the situation where you have about fifty million tabs open in your web browser. Um, but if, imagine if all of those are, are different drafts of texts across like 60 different agenda items and you can imagine it quickly becomes quite unmanageable so as i sat down on that middle sunday on my computer i thought well there's no way i can keep all of this in my head no way i can keep all of these tabs open so i need a spreadsheet and so i literally just made a spreadsheet for each agenda item each version of the text how many brackets does it have in it? So square brackets are used in draft texts where there are sections that they haven't agreed. So they might present different options for the, the way that they would word things. Um, so I was counting those. Just you know, People imagine it's some uh, magic, magical process that's very time-consuming, but actually it's just um, you know, Apple F or you know, Command F if you're using Windows computer and you just search for square bracket and, and that's it and you count the number. Um, and I made this spreadsheet and I thought, do you know what? This is really useful. And, you know, maybe other people will find it useful. I mean, it's it's kind of mad, but we dressed it up a little bit. It's just a spreadsheet, but um, we dressed it up and we published it and, and we shared it. And you would not believe the number of people at the COP in Charmel Shake last week that came up to me and, and said, oh, thank you so much for your text tracker. It's so, so useful. So, you know, that's... Uh, Surprise for the week, but I guess we're now locked into doing it again in future Maybe cops. it was you who saved the cop then, because... <laughs> oh, I don't think we can take credit for that. <laughs> Simon, um, have you actually listened into the negotiations themselves and sat in, you know, in, in the room where policymakers, negotiators were debating pieces of the text that you analysed in your spreadsheet? Have you, have you been part of that? Do you know, I actually haven't because, you know, what I've, I have sat into the, they, you know, they have at various points in the week, they have plenary meetings and those are open, including to media. So I have sat in on those, but th those typically will be like ministers or heads of delegation, um, effectively grandstanding that they'll be kind of setting out the things they're happy and unhappy about. Um, and they're, they're obviously doing that with, with a view to the fact that they are speaking publicly effectively. So those tend to be a little bit different. The, the, the negotiations themselves are not typically open to journalists. Um, I have to say, um, some journalists, so I obviously won't, won't name, I, I, I know quite a few journalists, did manage to sneak into some of the negotiating rooms at Sharm El Sheikh. Um, and the, the reason that that happened is, you know, they have security on all of the doors. And some of those security um, staff are provided by the UN. And so they know for sure if, if your badge is, a, you know, an orange badge for media, that means you're not allowed into the negotiations. But, um, I mean, you know, the, the logistics of the conference, and uh, people may have heard a little bit about this, the logistics were terrible. And one of the manifestations of that was that some of the security staff were just, you know, it, it, local Egyptian uh, security. And they, they didn't have a clue or either that or they didn't care. And so I, I know for sure some journalists did manage to sneak in. But ultimately, it's quite, quite time consuming and, and, you know, often quite esoteric. So at one point, for example, um, it was reported that there was this very, very lengthy fight over whether to whether to um, show on the screen a PDF or a Word document, um, which is just mad. I mean, some of this is negotiating tactics where people are deliberately stalling. 
Um, but yeah, so we were very busy and I, I, I didn't, I didn't have perhaps the initiative or, or the time available to try and sneak in. I mean, for people who, who listen in and who might be skeptical about COP, and I, I guess there will be many who think this is just a talking shop, you know, it's just for people to meet and what, what has COP ever done for us? Uh, I think quite a few people have, have that view. What would you say to them? You know, why do we still need those, those conferences? You know, what you described sounds bureaucratic, tiresome, uh, you know, tedious. And the outcome hasn't been great. I think that's what most people have said. So, so what, what do you say to people who think, well, why don't we just give up on COP? I mean, this is, you know, the kind of the version of this that I see very frequently. I mean, pretty much every year around the COP, but at other times as well, is people will, will show a chart of, of a concentration of, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And big surprise, guys, it keeps going up. And what people misunderstand about this is that carbon dioxide is cumulative. So it will keep going up until we reach net zero emissions, right? So until we've basically already solved climate change, that chart's going to go up and up and up and up. And so no matter how many cops we have, it will keep going up and, until we get to net zero. And, you know, so what people do, they show that chart and then they put timeline. And they say, oh, look, here's the first cop. It was, you know, whenever it was, 1992. No, 95, I lose track. Anyway, it was, yeah, it would have been 95 um, because 92 was the, the Rio Earth Summit where they agreed to have to have a UN climate convention and then the first COP met later. Um, you know, so they put, you know, COP1, then they put like, you know, uh, Copenhagen, COP15, they put COP21 in Paris and, you know, now we're at COP27, guys, and CO2 emissions keep going up. So surely that means it's a total failure. Well, I would say... Absolutely not. If you look back, just rewind to, to COP21 in Paris, at that time, the, the, the projections that people were looking at were saying we were going to see 3.5 or 4 degrees of global warming this century, which would have been absolutely catastrophic. Um, obviously, Paris COP21, they agreed you know, the Paris Agreement, and that, that set a target of well below 2 degrees and, and you know, aspirationally pursuing efforts, as they said, towards 1.5 degrees. And it's, you know, it's only seven years ago, but in that, in the space of that time, we've seen, you know, basically all of the countries in the world make some sort of pledge or other about climate change, which many of them hadn't done before. Um, we've, we've seen, you know, the vast majority of, of global CO2 emissions and global GDP now covered by net zero targets for, you know, 2050, 2060 and so on. Um, and on top of that, you know, we've, we've seen huge progress in Uh, you know, kind of flattening the curve of emissions. So we're not yet at the stage where emissions are starting to fall. And obviously, that chart of CO2 emissions going up and up, so, sorry, CO2 concentrations going up won't, won't flatten until CO2 reaches emissions reach net zero. But we are now in a situation where, where you know, the projections just based on the policies that are firmly in place today, would see warming limited to around two and a half degrees. And if countries meet all of the promises that they've made, if they manage to live up to the, you know, to their pledges, then, it, you know, we would be getting to well below two degrees, perhaps 1.8 or 1.7. So, you know, it, it's still not great. We're already at 1.2 degrees of warming today, but we have made a huge amount of progress and I don't think we should forget that. And maybe if I can just add, because like Jan and uh, the, the, um, David just said, yeah, we, we perceived it was underwhelming, but you haven't actually commented on, so the last COP 
was it then the failure as, uh, that it is currently portrayed or do you uh, like what is your assessment that you're taking from it now against this background so it's really a mixed bag um you know the, the thing that i talked about the agenda fight on loss and damage funding you know that was agreed that that would be on the agenda um and they said okay it's on the agenda and we will we will agree some sort of funding arrangements for this by 2024 so they gave themselves quite a lot of space and at the start of the cop no one believed that they would agree to to set up a new loss and damage finance fund at cop 27 this year so in a sense you know it's a great success that they did actually agree to that you know the us the eu many other developed countries were resisting that and indeed you know developing countries have been pushing for this for 30 years basically since the cop process began you know small island states and so on have been saying you know we're already facing climate impacts we need some money not to help us cut emissions not to help us build seawalls we actually need money to help us sort out the fact that you know all these buildings have actually been you know flooded houses flattened by hurricanes and so on and it, you know it's only now in in 2022 finally after you know 30 years of of asking we have finally come up with this loss and damage fund now obviously the details are yet to be hashed out exactly who's going to pay into it how much they're going to pay who's going to get money from this fund how will it be distributed because you know one of the key ideas is that it needs to give money out quickly you know if you've just if you just had a hurricane you need the money now you don't want to wait a year while someone assesses your your proposal um so all of that's to be worked out but symbolically it's a huge step forward and then on the other side of the, you know of the coin um you know effectively the eu when they when they they made an intervention on on sort of wednesday thursday last week where they they said okay we hadn't wanted to agree to a fund now but we are willing to make that that concession we will agree to a fund at cop 27 but but they said that must go hand in hand with ambitious action on 1.5 degrees because otherwise we're only addressing the you know the effects of climate change we're not addressing the causes and you know ultimately they basically didn't get that that you know that compromise. They didn't they didn't get that quid pro quo. Um, so what we had in this Sharm El Sheikh implementation plan was that it effectively held the line on what had been had been agreed in Glasgow, but it really didn't go beyond that baseline. So you know it talks about you know pursuing efforts um, towards one point five degrees, which you know exactly copy and pasted the, the wording from Glasgow. It talks about phasing down unabated coal power and phasing out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. But again, all of that was copy pasted from last year. The sorts of things that people were hoping for in terms of raising ambition, you know, in terms of a commitment to, to uh, um, peaking global greenhouse gas emissions by, you know, by at the very latest 2025, which would be, you know, in line with what the IPCC said, that wasn't in the text. Some sort of language around phasing down all fossil fuels, not just coal, or even phasing them out. Again, a growing list of countries, including some real surprises in there, like the US, Canada, Australia, all of those countries supported language on phasing down or out fossil fuels. And in fact, around 80 countries publicly supported that that call for that to be in the, you know, the, the COP27 outcome. And the Egyptian presidency effectively stonewalled that. So that's, you know, that's where the real disappointments lie. Simon, in addition to the high-level discussions and you know, all the issues you just described, um, very well. Uh, there are lots of side meetings at COP, and um, like people like myself um, often just come for the side meetings because that's where important discussions take place, where you can meet 
uh, you know, others who work uh, in, in the field. And, and that often leads to interesting um, you know, new ideas or collaborations. And we actually met at one of those side meetings at COP where you were moderating an event on a topic that we discussed already multiple times on what matters, uh, hydrogen. Uh, and you, you, um, you were moderating a discussion with, I think, five people on the panel, uh, including yourself. And um, uh, you know, I also noticed at COP that there was a lot of hydrogen uh, talk. There were lots of pavilions where you could see hydrogen um, you know, being promoted. And I was just curious what you made of the discussion that, that we had. I know you've written about hydrogen uh, multiple times for Carbon Brief. Uh, you, you follow this debate quite closely, but I, I'm curious to kind of get your takeaway from the side event and maybe COP at large about, about hydrogen specifically, because it's been... Uh, discussed so much this time yeah so i mean as you say there's you know there's the formal negotiations and you know i mentioned they they largely happen behind closed doors and you know they happen in a particular zone of the uh, of the cop but at the same time you have this 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 huge kind of effectively like the fringe right like, like the edinburgh fringe you have this huge huge collection of, of people you know and as a journalist this is very frustrating because Basically, everyone comes to COP with some, a story to tell. You know, they want to publish their report. They want to get their experts into the media. And you just get an absolute deluge of information. Having said that, you know, there is that, you know, there is great value in this kind of convening power. And, you know, you always meet, you know, I met Jan, you know, I met lots and lots of people at the COP. It's basically a collection of, you know, the great and good of, of the world that, uh, you know, are working on climate change. Now, I would agree that hydrogen was more prominent this year than it that has been in previous years. I mean, what does that mean? You know, what, what should we take from that? I mean, I guess a slightly cynical sort of take on it is that that people love solutions, right? Um, you know, people know that climate change is hard. It's a big problem to solve. And and they that, you know, moreover, they know that there are certain things where we don't have, you know, good answers, you know, whether that's let's say, decarbonizing parts of heavy industry or, you know, decarbonizing aviation or shipping. And so, you know, over the years, we've seen a, a selection of what you might call kind of unicorns or fairies, whatever kind of imaginary being you want to, to, to call them. And I guess, you know, a cynical take would be to, to label hydrogen in, in that same category. I mean, I think that's probably unfair to hydrogen because it's clear that it will have a role of some sort and getting to net zero. But I think perhaps this this kind of broad appeal and, you know, massive kind of uh, emphasis that it gains is is this idea that, that hydrogen is the answer to all of the difficult questions. In a way, perhaps that, you know, carbon capture and storage has, has been in the past. And the story of carbon capture and storage over, over time is that it's con consistently failed to live up to expectations, um, consistently failed to get off the ground. And, and you know, really the the prospects for carbon capture and storage keep diminishing as as other solutions come forward more successfully, you know, primarily clean energy, wind and solar, batteries and electric vehicles, all of that. Um, anyway, I think we may see the same with hydrogen over time. There's this huge hype at the moment. We've had previous hype cycles around hydrogen, of course, in the past. Um, but I think, you know, that that's where I would see this going. Me. Um However, there's one difference, like I think in the text that they're finally adopted, they are usually not talking about single solutions, right? So you wouldn't find the word hydrogen in the final text. 
uh, and that maybe is a little bit different, like if you follow the EU level debate, right, where basically the, the hydrogen hype has been already translated into actual, you know, it's in the policy documents, it receives the funding. And I think that's different, right? Yeah, no, that that's fair. So in the, the outcomes from, you know, COPs, the, the formal COP decisions, basically, if you just think about it, that all of them are adopted by consensus. So you're talking about nearly 200 countries around the world that have to agree to this. And so it's very, very difficult. I mean, this is why getting fossil fuels into that into that final text didn't happen. You know, partly we can say, oh, well, why did the Egyptian presidency refuse to put it in any version of the text, not even the draft where they said, oh, this isn't our text. It's just a compilation of suggestions that other people have made. So, I mean, that would have been the time where they could have put fossil fuel phase out or fossil fuel phase down into the text. And then they could have had the negotiations over whether to keep it there. But, you know, getting single technologies, single solutions into the text is extremely difficult because everyone has to agree. And actually, it's, it's quite interesting that if you look at the, the text that was agreed, it does talk about renewables specifically, um, but it also talks about low, low emissions energy. And there was a bit of a sort of a speculation, I guess, after, because that was a late insertion into the text. There was speculation that that was effectively, you know, the Egyptians that, you know, they're in the Middle East. Many of their neighbours are major gas producers. And there was a, this idea that perhaps low emissions energy re- referred somehow to gas or was some, some something of a loophole for gas. I think that probably isn't right because actually, you know, well, first of all, gas isn't low emissions. It's lower than, than coal, but it certainly isn't low in the same way as, you know, kind of renewables. Um, but secondly, that language around low emissions energy was already in the text at Glasgow last year. So the idea that it was some sort of nefarious um, kind of sop to, 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 you know, Middle Eastern countries, I think is probably not right. Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, Euros, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. Is it slightly hypocritical of the European uh, Union trying to force through uh, a, a cut in the emissions? We're talking about um, low emission uh, energy there. Um, when the European Union itself has included gas as part of the green taxonomy uh, and nuclear as well, and all that, is that where the rest of the world are kind of saying, "Well, look, if you're including low uh, gas as low emission, um, a low emission energy, we can include it in our plans as well." So it was. It's absolutely the case that there was this this big kind of. You know, there were a number of themes that surrounded what were kind of the backdrop to the to the COP summit in, in Egypt. You know, so stuff like the global energy crisis, the overlapping crises. You know, not just energy, but also food, debt, and and so on. Um, and of course, the you know the the various you know extreme weather events, you know, floods in Pakistan, heatwaves across Europe, and so on that we've seen this year. And actually, looking back to our coverage from from last year, you know, those extreme weather events are increasingly prominent. As, as the backdrop to every single COP um, as climate impacts start, you know, come home. So, you know, it, the energy crisis and Europe's response to that certainly, you know, certainly was 
part of the backdrop. And this idea, you know, it's an African cop, it's, you know, it's in Egypt, you know, many people across the continent of Africa don't have access to energy. And yes, you know, some people said, surely it is hypocritical to be saying, you know, we need to be tackling fossil fuels when, when lots of people across Africa really, according to one argument, would benefit from exploiting their fossil fuel resources to bring, you know, bring modern energy services, uh, higher standards of living. I, I think there's, a, you know, there's a few things. I mean, one is like the premise of your question is that the, the EU somehow categorised gas as, green, as low, low emissions, which I don't think is quite right. And, you know, included it in their green finance taxonomy, but with actually quite you know, and that, the broader narrative, as reported widely across the world, is that you know the EU has labelled gas as green, and that that isn't actually right. They're, they've they've constrained extremely tightly the circumstances under which gas would be classified as green. You know, effectively, only if it is you know a, a transitional thing on the way to you know, for, for example, hydrogen uh, turbines. So you can build a gas gas power station now and call it green as long as you're on a pathway to to retrofitting it with 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 hydrogen in the future. I mean, I think the other thing is that just that you know this idea that that fossil fuel resources in Africa, you know, that automatically exploiting those is going to be of a benefit to the people that need it the most. And I think that you know that is demonstrably not the case. If you look at the history of you know fossil fuel exploitation in you know, countries like Nigeria, um, you know. Huge amounts of, of oil have been extracted from from Nigeria, and that um, actually the people who have benefit, better benefited from that are not the Nigerian people themselves. In fact, they've been on the receiving end of you know repression and environmental pollution, and you know all of the negative impacts of of that of that exploitation, and actually very few of the benefits. So that you know that was certainly an argument that was happening at the COP, and you know there were deals signed on the sidelines of the summit for you know you know gas contracts and so on, but but really I you know I think that actually that 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 kind of narrative didn't really take hold in the way that some people said it would do. I would still I would still come back to the because I think still there is a bit of hypocrisy in the EU position which goes beyond taxonomy, which I agree is maybe not the biggest aspect. Huh? I mean we just. Uh, you know the figures from Bruegel, how many uh, how many billions were going into fossil subsidies. We opened again programs that were fossil free to make them for fossil. We did not. We have temporary reductions. We agreed on which is a good step forward. Now that you agreed on temporary reductions until March next year. But if you look at our modeling, which says minus sixty percent of final gas demand in twenty thirty, and nothing there to implement it in structurally terms. I think I would say there is a hypocrisy there in that we ask countries which where the economy substantially rests on fossil fuels to change, whereas for us, where we mostly depend on the imports and our economy is based on other things, okay, well, Germany is also reliant, not the model was reliant on that import, so it's probably more fluid, but, you know, we are not going ahead with some. I mean, if the EU, uh, you know, the EU did not revise its gas package, for example, after the invasion and said, okay, now we really reduce, it may, we would have been maybe more credible had we had something on the table that actually says, here, we do it. Coal goes up again now. We say it's temporary. I, I want to believe it because I think on coal there was progress in the EU. But what do you know? You know, for the time being, we're not exactly so leading by example there. That's why I would think... Indeed, I was a bit surprised that, you know, that the EU was perceived there as the 
the good pupil, because I don't think we are. And then um, attached to it a question, because I'm not a cop expert. What would it have implied had there been stronger legal wording on some fossil fuel face down? What would that have implied then legally for well, the EU? That is the question. I mean, you know, this, this, this what this comes back to is, you know, the UN climate regime, you know, the, the, the climate convention and then you know, the Paris Agreement that came after it, it, it operates in this slightly strange multilateral space. I mean, what, what we saw with the failure of the Kyoto Protocol was very much this, you know, the case that there is no way that this multilateral regime can compel anyone to do anything or and not nor can it um impose penalties or you know kind of uh consequences if you like on countries that fail to to meet their targets so the kyoto protocol set hard targets for for rich countries to cut their emissions many of them failed to meet those targets and nothing happened so the paris agreement was was a, a kind of a new model where they attempted to recognize this this kind of dynamic where indeed you can't you can't force anyone to do anything but you can take advantage or try and harness the kind of, you know, human nature, uh, if you like. And so what it said is, like, I'll jump if you will. That was kind of the model of the Paris Agreement. Everyone promised to do something. And as, insofar as there are consequences, well, there aren't any, except everyone will look at you and say, mate, you promised that and you failed. That That's really not a great, a great look. That's just embarrassing, you, you know you're an embarrassment to yourself, you're an embarrassment to your country, blah, 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 right? It, it's very much a kind of a, a harnessing of human nature. So coming back to your question, what would it have meant if it said fossil fuel phase down in that in that final text coming out of Sharm el-Sheikh? Well, on one hand, absolutely nothing. It said already, you know, coal phase down last year. And as we've already pointed out, certain countries have been increasing their use of coal this year. Um, even if in the medium term that you know they're planning you know to move away from the fuel, um, so so really it means nothing. On but then on the other hand, it, it is a signal, right? In the same way that countries pledging in an international forum to all of their peers that they're going to do certain things, if they all collectively agree that we're going to fa- phase down fossil fuels, that is a signal. That's a signal to each other. It's a signal to markets. It's a signal to the public at large. Um, you know, it's a signal to investors. It's a signal, you know, that that really does matter. One one thing that really struck me in Egypt uh, was, you know, how uneven we currently deploy clean energy technology across the world. And I, you know, I always check when I travel to a country what's the electricity mix um, there, you know, as as you would as an energy geek. And um, it, it was really shocking to see that Egypt, uh, which has so much solar potential is having just a bit more than 1% of its electricity uh, from solar. Um, you compare that to some of the countries in Europe, um, also Northern Europe, and it's significantly more. Uh, and, and one of the questions I asked people who uh, were investors or worked in the renewables industry is, well, why is that? You know, there's so much potential, but so little deployment. You know, 75% of electricity in Egypt is from fossil gas, uh, another 12% or so from oil. You know, why is it? That we don't deploy more solar and the answer that they were giving me is well it's mainly the cost of capital and the risk for investors um, and i think it's just um, scandalous that you know, we we have this great opportunity to actually produce clean electricity 
at lower cost uh, you know, and benefit those those economies that are in, in dire need of those cost savings. Uh, and and we're not doing it. I, I mean, this is this is something that I sense should be also part of the discussion when we talk about fossil phase down. How do we actually ramp up you know the, the alternatives to fossil fuels? And have you seen anything, Simon, at, at COP where this was discussed specifically? Now, how can we actually unleash uh, in, investment in in green technologies? especially in countries in the global south that are highly dependent on fossil fuels? Yeah, so there's, there's, two, there's two answers to this. So the first is that what we saw already in Glasgow at COP26 was the launch of this, this so-called Just Energy Transition Partnerships. So effectively, you had a, a group of, of rich countries, the EU, UK, US, and so on, um, going into partnerships with specific countries. So the first one is, is going to be with South Africa, a deal, you know, the sort of details of that deal are emerging. Um, this is very much about the question that you're asking: how how can somewhere like South Africa, which you know, as, as with Egypt, has absolutely massive renewables potential, but at, at the moment remains almost entirely reliant on fossil fuels for its energy? In, in South Africa's case, of, of course, it's coal. Um, and the idea of these partnerships is for the country involved, so South Africa. Potentially, Indonesia's then you know the next one that's been been announced, and others, Vietnam and and, and Senegal that are, that are being talked about. Um, the idea is that that country comes up with a plan. How how if we were going to transition to clean energy, what would that look like? How can we do it in a way that doesn't you know doesn't screw over the communities that are very reliant on fossil fuels at the moment? Say the coal miners in in, in South Africa, for example. And and then once they've done that. The, the point of the partnership is is very much about unlocking finance. So so for the South African deal, it's 8.5 billion um, of support, mostly in the form of loans. But the idea is is through that money, some of its grants, you know, t- um, and some of its loans. <coughs> excuse me. And the idea is that that helps unlock investment more broadly um, by lowering the cost of capital, de-risking. You know, identifying the barriers to, to, you know, why is it that investors are so unwilling to invest in those countries? Why is it that they're demanding higher returns, you know, higher cost of capital? What are the ways that that can be changed? And so, you know, that's that's one answer. That's one area that's that's going on through the COP process. The other thing is, you know, a bit of a sleeper issue, but actually potentially incredibly important. And that's this idea about financial systems reform. Um, so within the within the Sharm el Sheikh implementation plan, so one of the the, the agreements coming out of, of COP twenty seven, there's there's some quite interesting language around, you know, recognition that the global financial system writ large is not fit for purpose in a world where we're trying to meet climate targets, and so it talks about you know global financial institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, other multilateral development banks really needing to step up their game and, you know, look at how they give, how they lend, you know, uh, how willing they are to, to do things like, you know, debt relief or debt refinancing in a way that can support rather than hinder, you know, that transition to, to low carbon. Um, just, you know, just to, to sort of conclude on that, you know, there's some quite firm hooks in there about how to take that agenda forwards. Um, it's not just going to kind of drift away into nothingness. But, it, you know, it's very much a kind of an ongoing that we're at the start of that conversation. And, it, you know, I think it you know it could could be really interesting and powerful. And, you know, we've seen lots of countries around the world 
you know, supporting that agenda of the, the need for reform, you know, the US, President Macron of France and so on. Um, where it goes is is hard to say, but, you know, it, it's definitely, you know, the, you know just, just to sort of put it in, into perspective, there was the Bretton Woods meeting after the Second World War where all of those global financial institutions were created. And people are saying what we need now is a Bretton Woods too. So it's effectively totally recasting that, you know, that infrastructure of the global financial system in a way that, that is complementary to and indeed supports the transition to net zero and, and you know, the Paris targets. You kind of already mentioned the the energy crisis that we're seeing uh, in Europe and in many other parts of the world. Did that crisis overshadow the COP talks or people talking about how high prices are really uh, affecting the energy transition? So, I mean, I think, you know, as, as I mentioned, this idea that, you know, we were in a global energy crisis and look at Europe, you're turning back to coal and, you know, you're, you're signing long-term contracts for, for gas supply from other countries. That, you know, that certainly overshadowed the talks. Um, and there, but there was this clear attempt within negotiations to kind of push back on that. So there was a there was a, I can't remember the exact wording for you now, but but within the the Sharm el Sheikh implementation plan that came out of the summit, there is some quite clear text, basically saying we recognise we're in this you know series of overlapping crises around food, energy security, and so on, as well as the climate crisis, and. That that effectively, the, you know, the text says is is a good reason to double down on the transition. So it does state that quite clearly. You know, clearly, sort of from a narrative perspective, that you know that that was something people were talking about heading into and you know during the COP. But I think you know there's some pretty clear signalling from from the agreement that actually that's not a good reason to to go slow on this. I'd like to follow up on the energy crisis and maybe move away from COP. To, to Europe, if I may, um, because you followed the fallout of you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and also even before that, you know, with prices going up um, in 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 Europe, and specifically, of course, in the UK, where, where you're based, Simon. What are you seeing? Yeah, how is the discussion changing? How are people responding to what what we're seeing on either sides of the debate? And and where do you think? This is going. Do you think the energy crisis will be an accelerator of the clean energy transition, or will it essentially slow it down? What, what's your take? So, I mean, as you know, as, as a journalist, um, you know, one of the things we do at Carbon Brief, we have a daily briefing newsletter where we we basically trawl other media. We say who's who's saying what about you know the topics of the day. And that you know that's quite UK focused, but it's increasingly international in perspective as well. So we try and capture you know media from from China, for example, um, and it's been very eye opening, quite fascinating to watch that that narrative, you know, how the narratives have been shifting as a result of this global energy crisis. There's been a, an absolutely massive uptick in you know effectively, if not outright climate skepticism, um, you know, kind of climate delayism if you like with you know people saying we're in an energy crisis guys now's not the time to worry about net zero or even further um we're in this mess because of net zero which is obviously massively disingenuous and incorrect um as everyone from the head of the international energy agency onwards has has kind of asserted repeatedly um so you know i think a lot of that's in bad faith um but it's been interesting to see the level of resurgence of those types of arguments Now, in terms of how it's going to play out, I mean, I think, you know, I was reflecting earlier this year on the fact that, 
if we'd had a crisis like this five years ago, let's say, we would have been, in, I would say, would have been in, in really serious trouble with regards to climate action and, you know, the transition to, to low carbon energy. Because even five years ago, you know, the arguments that clean energy is cheap energy just just were much harder to make. The costs of, of wind and solar in particular have come down so quickly that, it, you know, the economic case for, for the transition to low carbon is now, it's basically unassailable. So in the UK, um, we had this, you know, auction for, for you know, contracts for new renewable uh, projects run by the government. And, you know, the contracts that came out of that ar- around that time, they were basically nine times cheaper than the prevailing cost of generating electricity from gas because gas was so expensive. And that, you know, that that kind of meme, if you like, that you know, renewables are nine times cheaper than gas has become, you know, it just keeps popping up politicians um, you know, Ed, Ed Miliband, um, Kwasi Kwarteng when he was you know, Secretary of State for, for, for Energy, um, you know, Greenpeace. It's, it's just become something that's be, been repeated all over the place. And I think it's just illustrative of the fact that we've moved it moved on now to, to um, a very different dynamic. And I think for that reason, um, the energy crisis is much more likely to be an accelerator than, you know, than, than the barrier to the transition. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the idea that uh, an energy crisis caused by incredibly expensive fossil fuels is going to lead to a resurgence in fossil fuels is actually a bit mad if you just reduce it to its simplest form. When you have alternatives, which are actually cheaper than fossil fuels, even before prices went crazy, um, why on earth would the crisis do anything other than accelerate people towards those? I mean, you know, it, it makes the case for energy efficiency more strongly than you know, any number of advocates um, particularly in places like the UK, where the, the Treasury itself is on the hook for people's energy bills to an extent. You know, if there is ever a time for them to be investing in energy efficiency to cut bills and their own costs, I mean, it is now. So, you know, I, I think overall, you know, we've seen that with the EU's Repower EU targets and the national targets coming out of that, that, you know, overall, while there is this temporary upsurge in, in you know, coal um, because gas is so expensive, I, you know, I think in the longer term, it's definitely going to, you know, push us towards towards low carbon more quickly. But if I could play devil's advocate there, you know, specifically in the UK, perhaps, you know, most of our energy is coming from renewables now. Maybe about fifty fifty. Uh, I think uh, over electricity, but not energy. Sorry, my apologies. Electricity. Um, my yes, absolutely. Electricity is mostly coming from renewables now, and yet my bill is still going up. And renewables is cheaper. Renewables is marginal cost, very little. Why are my bills still going up? So there's this ongoing debate now about um, you know, people People are suddenly paying attention to how electricity markets function. And I think the first thing to say is that the way they function in which the marginal unit of electricity sets the price for all units, and normally that marginal unit is gas, right? Particularly in the UK where we're heavily reliant, you know, 40% of our electricity still from gas, Um so people are suddenly paying attention to the way that market works. But it, it's important to stress that that is quite a common, in fact, probably the most common way of organising all markets. It's not some kind of strange, stupid way of doing things that, we, you know, that, that it is kind of, a, you know, what are we doing? This is mad. Um, it, there are good reasons why markets function in that way. Nevertheless, as we move towards, you know, a future in which most of our electricity comes from from you know wind and solar primarily, 
there is this big question mark about whether the marginal pricing model of electricity markets is the right one or whether there needs to be changes to that model to facilitate that shift you know to, to zero um, emissions and that you know that's kind of in a way like that that conversation was already happening in the UK and and at the level and it's kind of come crashing into this situation now where prices are going crazy and people are saying are there any quick fixes you know is there anything we can do to to kind of manage high prices this winter um so that you know consumers primarily but also governments can can cut their costs and you know, the, the answer to those two different questions, you know, the longer term market reform piece and the what can we do to do a quick fix now, those, the answer to those questions is not necessarily the same. So I think there's definitely a danger that, you know, in rushing to kind of sort things out for this winter and next winter and at high prices now, that that could interfere with, you know, that that longer transition that we do. We definitely need to have that conversation, um, of course, but but we could end up, um, counterproductive solutions, I think, in the short term. And of course, prices have already come down. You know, when you uh, look at um, electricity prices now, they, they in many markets are at a level similar to last year. And um, it, it really is, is um, it takes long, long time you know, to, to undertake these reforms. Um, we do a lot of work um, with the European Commission right now where we look at different market reform options. And it is really complicated changing a market design that evolved over decades. Um, and to do that in a few months' time is, is, is next to impossible to do that well. And there are lots of risks associated with that. So I, I, I agree with your point, Simon, that uh, yeah, this is something we, we need to look at quite carefully. And I, I also like the point that you made about marginal pricing, which is sometimes portrayed as something that only applies to electricity markets, but it really doesn't. It's just the way how most markets work. If you study economics, that's what you learn in, in, in the first uh, term at, at university. Um, I, I'd actually like to uh, shift topic, if I may, unless uh, Michaela and, and, and Dave uh, wants to, want to um, continue to talk about market design issues. Uh, you know, I'm interested in your take on social media. Um, yeah, I know you, you and our listeners probably know you already from Twitter, where you have a huge following. I think it's 75 or 70,000 followers, something like that, that you've amassed over the years. Um, and you, know, you use Twitter very well, very effectively. But it'll be, um, I think, interesting to hear, um, I guess, two things. One is, um, why do you use social media? Uh, what, what do you see as, as a key benefit as an energy journalist? Um, you know, some people still tell me it's a waste of time. Um, uh, yeah, it's 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 basically uh, not a good use of their time. They they rather um, you know spend their time elsewhere. And the second question is, what's going to happen to Twitter? Um, are, are you changing um, uh, platforms? Um, what what do you think is going to happen? So maybe let's start with the second question first. What will happen to Twitter? I mean. Honestly, I've I've no more idea than anyone else. You know, we're all sitting in you know kind of with our jaws dropping to the floor, right? Going, this guy just spent forty four billion dollars buying a platform that he's currently in the process of systematically un, uh, you know unraveling, and um, with you know sacking basically everyone that knows how to run the thing, um, and you know a series of kind of mercurial, uh, you know kind of decisions on a whim you know reinstating Donald Trump and you know things like that so what's going to happen I don't know I mean I guess I find it the idea you know I think the idea that it's just completely going to go black like it's going to switch off I find that very unlikely 
that you know there, there's a there's various kind of versions you know is it going to start breaking you know are things going to start not working you know that that's quite likely because he seems to have sacked all the engineers or they've all quit because he imposed you know unreasonable demands on them to, to stay um you know is is it going to become you know a less pleasant more toxic environment uh, possibly um you know I, I wouldn't say i've seen great evidence of that so far but i've certainly seen a lot more spam since he took over um so am I moving to another platform? I mean, at the moment, no. Yeah, and I know that you've created an account on Mastodon and you're, you know, engaging quite heavily there. I mean, I, I did look at opening an account. I have to say, uh, you know, as a pretty kind of technical tech savvy person, I found the barrier to entry to be quite high. And my my kind of take on that was, well, if I found, found the barrier to entry high, then it's never, it's just never ever going to have the the level of audience and, and engagement that, that Twitter has. And, um, and that, in a way, to hear that. I'm not calling <laughs> myself. At, you reminded me a bit of this, like you know, Google Circle thing that also never went beyond the Google Circles in a way. Remember, like it was I, also I, a, way, a weird way of setting it up, which I found really difficult to live with. But somehow I was confirmed it never was a thing. <laughs> so I'm glad you so say that. We'll see. I mean, I might be wrong. I might come to regret not having been an early adopter like Jan. Um, but I guess, in, you know, in a way it leads into the to the first question you asked, which was about, I mean, why why bother? Why do I spend time on Twitter? Um, certainly does. You know, it, I do see it as an investment um, and obviously – there has to be a return on that investment, right? So, I mean, there's a few different reasons. There's public profile, obviously, um, for for journalists, for their publications, public profile is very important. Carbon Brief is, you know, has a growing profile, of course, but but it is it's essentially, a, you know, it's a specialist publication, right? Um, by being prominent, you know, we are getting ourselves noticed, um, you know, particularly by other journalists, you know, so some of the stuff I'm doing on Twitter is is consciously de- designed to be effectively a service, right? So so stuff like at the COP, you know, tweeting the latest version of texts and saying, here are the key points as I see them. And here's the screenshot. So you actually can see the words I'm referring to. Um, you know, that's just useful, right? That's, you know, people following the talks find that useful. And other journalists find that useful, you know, I know because they, they tell me repeatedly. Um, and then when they're coming to write their story, they've been using our information, right? So then if they want to ask questions, they come to us. So that, that gives us a bigger voice. It gives us a bigger platform. Um, you know, so me and, you know, several of my colleagues that were at the COP were doing media interviews, you know, with BBC News. Um, I did BBC's newscast a podcast last week. Um, colleagues did like the World Service and, you know, the news channel and so on. Um, our, another colleague did a podcast with RTE in Ireland yesterday. So, you know, that that kind of level of, you know, that those platforms come in part through the work that we do on Twitter to, you know, to raise our profile. So that's like a, you know, kind of a selfish, self-interested version. And then, you know, the other the other thing that I think Twitter is amazing for is is the the way that it enables you to engage with other with experts, right? Um, you have a direct line in someone's direct messages into their inbox, 
um, you know, whether that's negotiators at the COP, whether it's ministers, you know, in the UK and elsewhere, whether it's, you know, experts who normally would be filtered, you know, if they're like some senior professor or something, normally they'd be filtered through a press officer um, and so on. And you're having conversations with those people directly. You know, they reply to your tweets. You have a DM conversation with them. Um, you know, if you put information out there, as I was doing at the COP, people come to you and they say, oh, I saw your thing. That's great. But you didn't, did you notice X, you know? So it's fantastically useful as a, an information gathering exercise. And, you know, ultimately, as journalists, you know, that's a big part of our job is, is collecting and filtering information. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think there's any other platform on social media that allows you to do that so effectively as you can on Twitter. So I hope it continues. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Does social media, um, will social media have a role in the energy transition? Can people like the European Union or the UK government use it better to get the message across about the energy transition and, and decarbonisation? Uh, and especially as, as well coming from people like yourselves and, and Foresight and Rap as well, can it be used in a better way to get that message out there to the wider public that perhaps aren't as versed in the in the lingo as we are? So I, I would say to an extent, I mean, of course, the other thing about Twitter, I didn't mention it, you know, it, it, is, it is still full of, of climate skeptics, of, of people involved, you know, involved in, you know, um, predatory delay if you like on climate change um it's you know it's full of bots and all sorts of unhelpful people but again you know one of the good things about twitter is that you can filter that you can you can fill you know you can mute you can block you can create lists and have you know tweet deck kind of um columns so that you you know you keep track of things that you want to keep track of and filter out the noise right um so it's great for for, for that in terms of can it be used to to speak to a wider public I mean, I think, you know, lots of people are on Twitter, but um, I don't know if it's necessary. I would say probably not the. it's probably not the forum for, say, government ministers to be speaking to the public writ large. You know, I think it's a great place for, for them to be engaging with, you know, with other experts and, and to be, you know, to, to be learning and exchanging views about things Um and seeing the messaging, you know, it's in a way, like one of the other nice things about Twitter is you, you know, you just have another go, right? You tweet and it doesn't work and you try and reframe it. And, you know, that kind of uh, learning about the messaging, the way that, you know, what is the most effective way of telling stories in a very brief way that, you know, which is enforced on Twitter. Um, you know, that that's quite helpful, I find. Um to you know kind of really crystallize your thoughts you know this is what's the point i'm trying to get across and how can i say it so that lots of people go oh yeah um so i'm sure it's useful for you know other expert organizations and for ministers and so on to see that that kind of that narrative you know narrative shaping work happening in real time but ultimately you know the mainstream media newspapers tv radio etc is is always going to be like the main way that those you know those um, decision makers speak with the public i think you know because ultimately only only a proportion of people are on twitter absolutely simon thank you so much for your thoughts today uh, one thing we ask all of our guests is if they could look into their crystal ball what does the energy landscape look like in 10 to 20 years time so what what is your vision of the energy transition uh come 2030 so i think some of the really some of the most interesting conversations i had um at the cop really speak to this 
Um, so a you know, for, former colleague that now works for the Global Wind Energy Council um, said that, you know, they had their pavilion at the COP as, you know, among, amongst that kind of fringe scene, if you like. And she said that they just had, they had random ministers from countries like Iran turning up to their pavilion unannounced, no meeting arranged, saying, hey, we want to talk to you about wind. How's it going to be part of our, our energy future? And, you know, I, I know, another conversation I had was, with, you know, with, with someone that's from Australia in, in an industry group in Australia, talking about how, how they're, you know, the conversation they're having in Australia has been absolutely transformed since the election, where basically it was a kind of, um, you know, it was a conversation you couldn't have, you couldn't talk about the transition. It was happening already, but you couldn't really talk about it politically. Now, everyone's suddenly talking about, oh, what are we going to do about coal mining? And, you know, oh, yeah, we probably are going to close most of our coal-fired power stations by 2030. Um, so, you know, I think I think we're in this moment where the transition is really kicking off. Um, people, A lot of people still haven't noticed. And I think, so looking into my crystal ball, I would say by 2030, it's just going to be unmissable and not just in certain countries. You know, I think all over the world, um, that transition is going to be happening. The idea that, you know, oh no, we can't, how can we possibly get our electricity supplies mainly from wind and solar? That, you know, that's just going to be passe. We're just going to be doing it in the way that some countries are already starting to. But, you know, places like Vietnam have seen an absolute explosion in solar energy um, over the last couple of years. There's just going to be a growing list of, of countries around the world embracing that transition. And, you know, so, so that's, you know, that's what I think. You know, a lot of the conversations that people have now about, oh, I don't know, it sounds tricky. I don't know if we can do that. That's just all going to be over. We're going to be fully embracing you know, not to say we will have solved climate change, far from it. There's going to be lots of sectors where many, many difficult questions remain, you know, industry, agriculture, land use, and so on. But I think in a very big way, the transition will be underway across the world by 2030. Definitely. That sounds uh, very optimistic. So um, hopefully that... I can't believe how optimistic you are. <laughs> You're making me optimistic. The COP27 journalist makes me optimistic in this podcast. That's quite something. I mean, I think, that, yeah, that's a reflection of, in a way, of like this this disconnect, if you like, between the COP process, where which is quite adversarial. There's countries fighting over words. And it seems, you know, in some ways inconsequential and, so, you know, in some ways like it's never making progress. And on the other hand, you have what some people kind of refer to as the action agenda or, you know, what's happening in the real world. And, you know, I think that there's a growing disconnect, you know, both in terms of the demands of the outside world, you know, guys, we really need to be getting on with this and the cop doesn't seem to be responding, but also this disconnect in terms of, you know, the, the kind of continued resistance of the cop, if you like, to talk about the transition and talk about phasing down fossil fuels. And actually, if you look at the real world, what's actually happening on the ground where things are moving much more quickly. Before we go, we uh, pop around the table and ask uh, what caught my eye over the last sort of week or so. Uh, obviously, lots going on with, with COP and everything. Uh, Michaela, let's, let's start with you. What caught your eye over the last uh, 10 days or so? Makes sense to start with me. I had time to read other things while others didn't. Um, it was the Barcelona students that had a seven-day sit-in because they demanded a compulsory course for cl on climate change, which I thought was amazing um, to be repeated everywhere and not and also beyond universities, I'd say. But uh, the commitment—it's amazing. Mm. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. And I think then obviously educating the next generation uh, will be uh, an important factor here. Uh, Jan, what caught your eye? I'm going to do some um, self-advertisement here, if that's permissible. Uh, When EdCorp RAP launched a new toolkit for getting heat pumps to mass market, um, and it's a global toolkit, uh, it's it's fun to play with because it's it has a, a number of videos that short explainer videos that guide you through the toolkit. Uh, you can click on on different graphics and be guided to different parts of the toolkit. And um, I just wanted to flag it uh, on on this podcast. Um, we've done it together with an organization called Clasp um, and the Global Buildings Performance uh, Network. Uh, so it's a global effort, and uh, I think some of our listeners might find it super useful. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, your colleague Richard Lowe's has done a, a thought leadership piece on Foresight as well, uh, which was published today, and we can put a link to both of those in the show notes. Uh, Simon, what caught your eye? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow the trend set by Jan, I'm afraid, and uh, also just you know reflect on the fact that having been at COP for a week and then spent the next kind of 36 hours trying to to put all of our thoughts down, you know, me me and a number of other colleagues our thoughts have been so focused on getting our COP summary out. And just to pick out, you know, perhaps a couple of items from the summary that I think, you know, people haven't necessarily been talking about that, you know, might be interesting for your listeners. One, I think is, you know, is this this thing that I mentioned already about the financial systems reform. You know, I think that's like a sleeper topic. It, it could be transformational. Um, we don't really know yet, but the fact that it's, you know, it's in the COP agreement, it, it's really starting to kick off I think it's really fascinating to watch and it's something certainly that we will, a carbon brief will be following closely over the next year. Um, just, you know, one other thing is sort of a random topic in a way, but um, one of the strange things about the COP is obviously it's about tackling climate change, but we published a guest post just before it started about where, where some, you know, um, some academics basically went through every single COP agenda and every single item on every single COP agenda. And they worked out, what do these things actually talk about? And one of the surprises is they don't really talk about sectors. They don't talk about fossil fuels. There isn't really a conversation happening at the COP to discuss, like, how do we how do we address, you know, the energy sector? How do we address industry? So there's this, this little known part of the COP process called the Coronivia Joint Work on Agriculture. And it's already been going for a while. It, it's basically a series of... Um, I guess you know technical dialogues and you know, political dialogues, and it's and it's been extended for four years uh, as agreed in COP twenty seven, and it's actually it's sort of surprised everyone involved by being productive, being you know constructive, and it's really you know really bringing together all aspects of the food system and agriculture, talking about what are the impacts of climate change, how what are the ways that we can address it. Um, and they, they agreed after a bit of a fight, it has to be said, to, to insert climate action into that agenda. Um, so it's basically the only part of COP that is specifically looking at a single sector and talking about it in the context of climate change, which is kind of fascinating and also perhaps horrifying. 
But all of that and much, much more is in our COP summary, um, which is up on the website as of as of yesterday. Amazing. Again, we'll uh, make sure we put a link to that in our show notes. Um, just finally from me then, um, I'm going to do a little bit of uh, promotion for Jan, actually. Um, and uh, the latest episode of the Everything Electric show, uh, which popped up on my YouTube channel and uh Jan talking about his uh heat pump at his home nice to see a little bit of uh your uh, house there Jan and the where you live and just talking about how living with a heat pump uh, and how sort of easy it is and and lots not scary it is uh, which I think is a lot of looking a lot of people I'm looking behind you, Jan, and I can't see any icicles and you don't seem to be wearing a jumper. So I conclude that your heat pump must be heating. I'm in Brussels um, (laughs) in our office. So um, I'm I'm Oh, you're cheating. Um, But no, just this morning, I actually, I I set back the temperature um, uh, of our heat pump um, quite a a bit to, to save some energy. And my wife texted me, the kitchen is too cold. Uh, turn the heating up. <laughs> but that's because it was a deliberate choice. No, the, it works very well. And it's a fully charged show, I think. Oh, they, have their, they have their um, home energy you know, addition. Uh, there'll be plenty more uh, to come from them. That sounds good. I will share that to that and say you can see, see Jan in action uh, on video as well. Um, so my thanks to Simon, uh, Michaela and Jan for their thoughts today. If you have any questions about anything we've said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Dave W underscore Foresight. Simon? Uh, Dr. Sim Evans. Michaela? At CitizenSane1. And Jan? Jan Rosenau. Uh, if you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet the show at WhatMattersPod or email us at show at WhatMattersPodcast.com. Before we go, I'd quickly like to mention that we're doing a live recording of the podcast and you can be in the audience. We'll be in Brussels on December the 8th and you can see all the details and sign up to secure your place at the recording by going to our uh, at Foresight DK Twitter account and following the link on the pinned tweet. And we hope to see you there. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you all next time. Thank you.